That's funny. I looked over at Todd with a raised eyebrow. What's funny? He showed me the listing he had pulled up. It was for a small house out in one of the suburbs. Maybe not the best location for a lot of businesses, but we really just needed collaborative workspace and good internet. And office parks and houses out in the boonies were way closer to being in our price range. Still, at first, I didn't know what he was trying to show me. I flicked through these several snapshots of the property. Distant exterior shot, inside dark shot of the living room, shot of a kitchen that actually looked better than mine, then... I glanced back up at him. Okay, this seems nice and all, but isn't this bigger than what we need? He rolled his eyes. No, not for us to rent or something. Keep flipping till you get back outside. I was slightly irritated now. He had all the focus of a puppy on crack sometimes, and we were taking our lunch break to do research when we could be getting actual lunch, but fine, whatever. It would be quicker to just play along than argue with him and have him sulk for two hours. Flipping through the pictures faster, I caught glimpses of a bedroom, a bathroom, another bedroom, and then finally another picture outside. This one showed the back of the house, and in one of the windows, a young girl was staring out at the camera. She had long, dark hair, framing a thin face set in what looked like the beginning of a petulant scowl. Frowning slightly, I gave a shrug. <laughs> yeah? So it's a bratty-looking kid in the window. So what? Todd took his phone back with a chuckle. Just wait. Todd took the phone back with a chuckle. <laughs> Just wait. He turned the screen back toward me and scrolled to the top of the page. So you see this address, right? This is 2849 Maple Cross Road in Durham. I nodded. I do. I think we already decided that Durham is too far out for Perry to drive every week. Todd snorted. <laughs> Perry is a whiner. And you know he's still going to do remote work half the time anyway. He waved his hand. But you're getting off topic. He tapped the screen, shifting over to a different tab in his phone's browser. Okay, look at the address here. Okay, 310 Bassett Avenue. At least this one is in Chesterton. Come on, man, what, what am I looking for here? I'm not in the mood for Where's Waldo. He snickered. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Just scroll through the pictures. Taking the phone back, I started flipping past the various rooms, my mind already back to weighing the size and layout of the place. We really only needed three small rooms for private offices and one central space for collaborative stuff. Bathroom, small kitchen, and anything that was... I paused, flipping back to the last picture. What the fuck? Todd laughs beside me. <laughs> I know, right? It was an exterior shot, the first in this house's sequence of pictures, and a bit closer up than any I'd seen of the other house. The angle was still wide enough to show most of the front of the building, but it was clear this was a smaller, older place than the place in Durham. There was one thing that was the same, however. The dark-haired girl staring out from one of the windows at me. I zoomed in to the point of graininess and then back out. It really didn't look like the same girl, but it had to be a coincidence. I was probably just seeing two girls with dark hair in similar circumstances and making them the same in my head. Tabbing back to the first set of pictures, I zoomed in more there, too. Beside me, Todd was practically bouncing in his seat. Yeah, I did that, too. It's the same girl. It has to be. <laughs> How weird is that? After flipping back and forth a couple of times, I nodded and handed the phone back to him. Yeah, it is, but maybe it's like some kind of weird inside joke. Like a realtor that always puts her kid in one of the pictures of the house she's selling. He frowned slightly, turning to poke at his phone for a moment. Nope, I don't think so. Different realty companies and different agents on both. I shrugged. Maybe it's the same people selling or renting out both? People do have multiple rentals sometimes, and they're only, what, like 20 miles apart? He didn't respond right away, instead tapping again on his phone. 
I went back to actually looking for an office online. Ten more minutes and I'd have to head back inside, and I'd really like to have some good option to show Perry on Saturday. He was a bit of a whiner, but he was also going to be fronting the deposit in the first month for whatever rental we found, and I wanted to get one locked in before he changed his mind. Ha! Sighing, I turned back to Todd. <sighs> what? I checked the tax information on the two houses. It wasn't hard. There were links to it on the house's profiles. Different owners going back as far as the records go. No connection between the two that I could find. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah, that's weird. But we don't have any idea of what it means, right? I grinned at him. It was cool, though. Look, I need to head back in. Text me if you find any more good options this afternoon, alright? Looking a bit glum, Todd nodded. Sure thing, Captain. My phone buzzed at 2.43. Seeing as it was a text from Todd, I opened my phone and went to it. It was a link for the website we'd been browsing. The property had a city address, but it was way out at the edge and the rent wasn't terrible. Which meant it was either a really bad part of town or the house itself was in shambles. Probably some partially restored meth den. I clicked on the thumbnail carousel and felt mild surprise. It wasn't bad at first glance. Older, yeah, but the yard looked nice and the exterior paint looked fairly well maintained too. The exterior pictures slewed around the side of the house to a tidy fenced-in backyard and then... God damn it. There was a picture of the back of the house and in one of the windows was the same sullen little girl. Grimacing, I called Todd's number. Did you see it? Did you see that shit? You're doing this. Admit it. <laughs> Bullshit, I am. Bullshit, you're not. Did Perry help you with this? You know, I find it funny that we're two weeks late on the Munson job, but you have time to waste on... Carrie, I'm telling you, we <laughs> we didn't do this. I don't even know how we could do this. This this is a big encrypted website. We do web ads and social media promotions. Not exactly pro-hackers over here. I puffed out a breath. <sighs> he wasn't wrong. So what? You just happened to find that girl in another house? No, I didn't just happen to find her. I spent the last two hours looking through houses for her. It was getting boring, but then she popped up, and... And that's not all. My phone buzzed again. Check your texts. I found another one. I felt my pulse quicken as I looked at my phone and clicked the link. It was a house, three counties over, and I had to flip to the last picture, but there she was. Staring at me. Accusing me. Swallowing, I put the phone back up to my ear. I'm back. Did you see her? Yeah. Yeah, I saw her. Listen, what do you think about us going and checking out the one before that? It looked good for the location and the price. There was a pause, and then... Wait, you're serious? Yeah, why not? Awesome. I'll call now and see when we can get in to check it out. All the fixtures are original. The wiring was replaced back in 2008, so no problems there. I had one of our inspectors look over the plumbing, check for termites, that kind of thing, and he gave a clean bill of health. Did you say you were looking to rent or buy? Todd had wandered off, probably to look for the girl in the window, and... I was left actually looking at the place and dealing the desperate realtor. Uh, rent. The listing said that was an option, right? She nodded, her lips thinning. It is, yes. Though, I'll tell you, at this kind of price, it'd make a great starter home for you two. My eyes widened slightly as I looked in the direction Todd had gone. Uh, us? No, uh... 
We're we're just friends. Business partners, too. When she frowned, I kept rambling. We want this for a workspace and with another friend of ours. Not a zoning issue. We're not opening store or anything. We do web development, and we've reached a point where we need an actual place to work instead of just doing it out of our bedrooms, you know? Trying to make it our main job instead of a hobby. She nodded, seemingly unconvinced. Uh, well, I'm sure that's very rewarding. If you do decide to rent it, then it'll be first... Her words faded into the background as I saw something move behind her in the shadows. It was the little girl, Maria. She had... She remembered what I'd done. Hearing a question, I pulled my gaze back to the agent. I'm sorry. What? She forced a smile. I asked if you had any more questions or just wanted some more time to look around. I shook my head. Uh, no, no, no. I I've seen enough. We want it. Look, I didn't want to say anything in there, but Carrie, are, are you sure about this? Perry is going to be pissed we signed for a place without asking him, and this neighborhood isn't exactly great. Putting the car in drive, I shook my head. I'll deal with Perry. Just, just trust me on this. It had to be this place, okay? I felt, as he gently touched my arm, his voice soft and uncertain. Did something happen in there? Did. He gave a short laugh and then forced himself to finish the sentence. <laughs> did. Did you see her in there? I almost told him then. Told him about my best friend growing up, about the, the, the choking, the, the well, everything. But something stopped me. Instead, I just gave him a smile. All I saw in there was a good deal. Don't worry, Captain's got this. Surface me was in her element and doing well. But underneath me, I kept remembering more, hating myself more feeling guilty and scared every time I caught a glimpse of the girl from the window. Of Maria. Harry and Todd didn't seem to be holding up much better than I was. Maybe it was just the hectic schedule and the stress, but by the start of the third week, they both looked haggard and weary. When I told them they should just head home and get some rest, I meant it, but it wasn't my only reason for saying it. I'd gotten the idea that if I was there alone, the girl would visit me. Talk to me. Tell me what I had to do to earn her forgiveness. They agreed, reluctantly, and I promised them I was heading out in just a few minutes, though I had no intention of going anywhere. Instead, I walked through the house, talking to the walls, calling out to Maria, asking her to come and talk to me. When I got an answer, it wasn't a young girl's voice. It was Todd's. Carrie, what are you doing? His voice was high and strange. My first thought was that he was worried I'd gone crazy, wandering this house talking to myself for some made-up ghost girl we'd seen in the pictures. When I turned to look at him, his expression was equally worried. I almost faked a laugh and tried to play it off, but I changed my mind. He wouldn't believe me. He knew me too well, and besides, he deserved the truth, as ashamed as I was to admit it. I... I was talking to Maria. The... 
She's the little girl in the windows. He stepped closer, frowning. You're calling her Moria now? He had a large brown sack clutched in one hand, but he sat it down as he reached out to me and gripped my arm firmly. Eyes watering, he caught my glaze and held it. Are you saying you know who she is? Nodding, I patted his hand and began to tell him. When I was ten, a girl moved into the house down from mine. We were the only two kids our age in the neighborhood, and it didn't take long before we were best friends. She was homeschooled, but every day when I got off the bus, I'd run to her house instead of my own. We'd go out playing and roaming around until we'd hear our parents yelling for us to get inside before it got dark. Even then, sometimes we'd pretend we didn't hear and keep doing whatever it was we were doing. For a while, it was the happiest I'd ever been. I never felt like I belonged with my family. It's not that they didn't love me, but I just... I didn't fit in. The Moria, it felt like we were always in sync. We never argued, and it always felt like she had some new adventure planned for us. Even when she started talking about finding Starlight, I didn't think that was weird. Sorry, you don't know what that is. It's what she called it. Finding Starlight. The idea is we would take turns choking each other until we blacked out. When one woke up, then it would be the other's turn. It didn't work at first, but over time we got where we were doing it, and doing it for longer periods of time, I... I don't know why we did it. It always hurt, and I was always scared, but it seemed to make her happy, so I kept doing it. I kept doing it until one time when... <laughs> one time when Maria didn't wake up. I... I tried everything. The most either of us had ever been out was a few minutes, and I always see her breathing and listen to her heartbeat. This time it was different. She was too still. I couldn't see her breathe. I couldn't hear her heart. She was... Todd, she was dead. I panicked. Of course I panicked. I started screaming and crying, trying mouth to mouth, pushing on her chest. Things I'd seen on TV, but I didn't really know how to do. I had to have tried at least three or four minutes before I gave up and laid down next to her. I wanted to die too. That's when she sat up, screaming this awful scream I'd never heard before. At first I was scared and happy, hugging her so tight that, well, I think that's what kept her from running off then. She went from screaming to crying, and after a while she started to talk fast, stuttering sentences that I wasn't even sure was meant for me. She held on to me once she started weeping, but I still wasn't sure she even really knew I was there. She just kept talking, spitting out the words faster and faster, talking about where she had been. She told me about waking up at the edge of a cold and terrible forest, the space between the trees unnaturally dark. She was scared of the dark, so she turned the other way, toward a rolling hill of brown grass and bright green trees with leaves that shuddered at her approach. The branches of those trees reached out toward her, and she saw the two green leaves weren't leaves at all, but mouths. She started to run then, up and over that hill and to the next one. The trees were fewer here, and ahead she saw a house on the next rise. It was painted blue and white, and she kept calling it the gingerbread house, though I don't know what that means. 
What I do know is that she climbed the hill toward it, and as she did, the hill began to move under her. Looking down, she saw thousands of black legs milling below her, shaking off dust and leaves and dirt as the thing she was on moved off of a bed made of bones picked clean and skulls cracked and crushed beneath its weight. She said the sound was the worst part. The sound of its endless legs stepping through countless layers of old bone as it crawled toward some unknown destination. She saw a broad, flat head a hundred yards away, and though she couldn't see its eyes, she felt like it saw her. Knew she was there and might shake her off to get at her any moment. So she ran into the house. She understood it was part of this thing, but it still looked like safety, and at least there may be she wouldn't free fall so easily. She ran up the steps to the door. The knob turned easily, and when she went inside, she said that time was a lie, and that hell is a very truthful place. That she spent forever in that house, inside that thing, and that she shoved me down then stood up, started kicking me hard. It took the breath out of me, and when she ran off laughing, I didn't follow. I waited there for an hour, and when it started getting dark, I went home and told my parents that Maria had gotten lost in the woods. They started searching for her right away, and it only took a couple of hours to find her. She was drowned face down in a creek less than a foot deep, her hands wrapped around tree roots like she was pulling herself into the water instead of trying to get out of it. They asked, Carrie, stop. I blinked. I'd been deep in those memories, and being pulled out of them so abruptly I felt disoriented. Todd was staring at me, his face a mask of confusion and concern. What? Carrie, none of that is true. I frowned at him. What are you talking about? Of course it is. If you don't believe... He shook his head as he cut in. No, it's, it's not about me not believing you or, or trusting you. It's that literally none of that could have happened to you. Feeling anger building in my chest, I tried to keep my voice calm. <laughs> oh, really? Why do you say that? Rubbing his mouth, he started shaking his head. A couple of reasons. First off, I grew up with you, remember? We were best friends since, like, third grade. You never lived in a neighborhood without kids. You never had some creepy girl move in nearby that you became friends with. Sucking in a breath, he continued, his voice trembling. And no kid we ever knew ever died while growing up. Todd gave a humorless smile. Well, other than hearing about that guy that killed his little girl by drowning her in a creek when we were teenagers... I, he met my eyes and grasped in my hand as we went on. Second, because for the last few days I've been thinking about my sister Samara. Oh, I loved her, but she was bad and I wound up helping my parents trick her into falling down a well. When I just stared at him, he gripped my hand tighter. I've been all tore up about it. I can't sleep full of guilt and terrified because once I started remembering it I realized this little girl we've been seeing is my little s no 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 that's that's not possible it's Maria and and I raised my finger pointing at him like I was making the winning argument of debates and you don't have a sister you're an only child I remember that I used to pester you about being an only child because you wanted a brother like I had and I was jealous of how much your parents 
Oh, how much they loved you. I'd call you Todd the Lonely Pony. I was starting to cry now, my head spinning as I tried to sort out the conflicting memories wearing in my head. Yeah, I... I shook my head. But no sister. I squeezed his hand and looked up at him. Right? He nodded, his own eyes shimmering with tears. No. I didn't realize until I heard you talking about your stuff with that Maria girl. I think it took part of your real memories and mixed in other stuff to trick you. Control you. Did the same thing to me. He gave a watery laugh. <laughs> Shit, I think a lot of that stuff about my sister came from the movie The Ring. I laughed now too, in spite of my sadness and confusion and growing fear. I lowered my voice to a whisper. We have to get out of here. Now. Nodding slowly, Todd glanced around, his face paling with fear. Do you hear that? What? It sounds like the water is... Todd was yanked away then, his expression shocked and scared as he flew backward, cracking his head against the corner of the wall as he was drunk by invisible hands down the wall. I started to scream, staring at his bloody banged head against the doorframe of the bathroom before floating limply inside. Getting to my feet, I ran after him, heart pounding as I tried to understand what was happening, how I could get Todd and get out before it was too late. But it was already too late. He was face down in the full tub, arms pinwheeling as the dark-haired girl held him down. As I started into the room, she turned and smiled at me, a wall of air slamming me back into the hall before the door swung closed and locked. I yelled and beat on it, but it didn't budge, and before long, the sound of struggle on the other side. I was replaced by dead silence. That's when my phone buzzed. It was Perry's wife, Trudy. The text just said, Perry drowned in the pool. He must have come home and gone right in. He was in his work clothes. Don't understand. Did he seem strange today? Shuddering, I started crawling away from the bathroom door. I had to get out. I had to get away before it was too late. A hand on my head stopped me. I looked up, trembling, into the face of the dark-haired woman that was smiling down at me. Don't. Don't kill me. Please. Her voice was soft and musical when she spoke. I won't. I'll do whatever you want. Her smile widened. You will glance back toward the bathroom. Why did you have to kill them? When she didn't answer, I puffed out the rest like it was the last air in my body, the weight of its passing dragging my head down toward the floor. I... I'm all alone now. A long finger cupped my chin and raised my eyes to her again. She was wearing something black and amorphous. A dress, maybe, or was it just a shadow? It didn't matter because it parted as she grew, showing me an inner dark full of silken strands and whirls of distant storm woven together like the nighttime tapestry of a spider's dream. She chuckled as she did so, and I could feel her invisible hooks pushing into my brain again. She was Maria, wasn't she? A little ghost girl, all grown up, or was that right? Hadn't something just happened to someone I loved? Yes, yes, Todd. Oh, God, Todd and Perry were dead. I streaming, I wanted to curse her or say I was sorry or just beg for her to let me go. Instead, all I managed was a weak whisper, an echo of what I'd said before, the mournful truth that resounded in my heart. I'm all alone now.
She laughed again, her face looking younger for a second, younger and more cruel. <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? I'd always known that my great-grandma was an orphan, but in late October of last year, she decided to tell me the truth about what happened to her family. We were visiting her for her birthday. It was a tradition in our household, a road trip we knew in the back of our minds we'd take only a few more times. She was turning 98, so that was just the cold, hard truth of the matter. In my childhood, the journey to central Iowa had been fun and light-hearted affair, but now my brother and parents could only maintain strained politeness as we met up and hit the road together. Each of us knew that this trip might be our last. For several hours, we drove through vast open farm fields that stretched from horizon to horizon. My great-grandma's house was down a narrow dirt road off a wide dirt road off a gravel tractor lane. As a city boy, it was more or less the most remote possible dwelling I could imagine. She was born there, had lived there her entire life, and would soon... Well, as we parked in an open, muddy rectangle and stepped out to stretch our legs, the constancy of the place surrounded me. Every single year of my life, this house and its land had been exactly the same. The sky was open blue, the earth was a sea of waving gold, and the wind was a smooth river of cold warmth. There was never anything to mar those three pillars of sensory experience except the house, the barn, and the defunct old tractor, and the bell. The bell was a simple thing, raised high on an old metal crook. It sat out in the fields about a quarter mile from the house, serving as a measure of the wind. If a storm was coming, the bell was supposed to ring, a necessary precaution in tornado country. The only problem was, the bell and its crook had rusted over long ago. Every time I got out of the family van from age 5 to age 26, I glanced in that direction and felt a sense of unease as my gaze fell upon that decayed artifact. This time at... Age 27, I looked over and saw that the bell had been scraped and polished clean of rust. It glinted in the sunlight, practically daring me to look at it. I followed my family inside while struggling with a feeling of dread that I couldn't articulate. Who had cleaned the bell? And why? I tried to stop thinking about it as we gathered in the kitchen and said our hellos. My great-grandma was making tea and shooed off our attempts to help. She was a frail woman for whom movement was difficult, but she'd never let that stop her. The Wi-Fi password is on a note in the living room, she told us with unquestionable authority. Go stare at your phones and the tea will be ready in a moment. My brother and I did as we were told, but my parents turned on the television instead of looking at their phones. For a few minutes, we stayed in our separate worlds, only returning to the present when my great-grandma brought in the tea. And we had a nice time. That night, when everyone else was long asleep, I happened to open my eyes and see a glow under the door of the guest room I shared with my brother. My parents were in a different room and would not see the same light, so it was up to me to investigate. Quietly, so as not to wake him, I crept out and down, finding my great-grandma still awake. She sat in her big jade leather chair, her gaze on the television. She asked me without looking my way. You don't fall for this stuff, do you? What, like, ads? She pointed her thin little arm at the nearby couch. Sit. I sat. 
I'm going to tell you a little family secret, she said softly, finally looking my direction. It's for you, and possibly for your brother, but not your parents. Do you understand? I didn't, not fully, but I nodded. You know I was an orphan for a time. Born in this house, lived with my family, but then raised by an uncle after it happened. She didn't wait for my nod. I was ten years old that night. It was my birthday. My mother had gotten me a small cake about the size of your fist. I looked forward to that cake every year, since we didn't exactly have sweets bounding about back then. It was 11 cents, so rather expensive, but my mother got one for every one of us on our birthdays, no matter what she had to scrimp or save. All year long, I saw Mary get her cake in January, Arthur get his cake in March, Eleanor in June, Clarence in July, then Ruth a week after Clarence. Then it was months and months until me, the odd one out, on October 29th. I was so excited for that cake. As the days rolled closer, as the morning dawned, as the hours inched by, I hopped around the house like a bunny rabbit. But I wasn't allowed to eat it until well after supper. I stared at the clock, so I know. Yes, that one on the mantel there, the brass and chrome one. Same one. But I stared at the clock, so I know. Night fell at 641. That was the moment bright orange stopped glinting off that clock, and my mother rose to light a lamp. I looked up at her. Now? She smiled and shook her head. My brothers and sisters complained in a chorus in support of me, but she just shook her head at them. Too soon, and she'll ruin her supper. Father came in from the fields not too long after that, dirty and tired as all get out. He ate in silence while we clattered endlessly about what type of cake it would be. Under the frosting, who knew? It might be raspberry, vanilla, even chocolate. We grew silent as Father neared the cleaning of his plate, an event which would mark the end of supper. Four pieces of meat and bread remained, and then three, two... Any moment now. He stopped at the last piece, holding it unmoving above the remaining dollop of gravy. We turned our heads. It was the bell. The bell was ringing out in the fields. Father grunted and put the last piece of his food back on his plate before rising. He opened the front door. We braced ourselves for the wind. None came. He spat on and held up a finger to the night air, then shook his head. He moved back into our lamplight and sat. Arthur asked, Is it going to storm? Mary asked, Is there going to be a tornado? My mother shook her head and smiled at us, and told us not to worry. No wind meant no storm. that bell kept ringing. My father dipped his last piece of food in the gravy and prepared to eat it despite the constantly ringing bell. But then he sighed and put it back down. He motioned to Clarence. Clarence was the oldest, so he understood. He was nearly a man himself, and tying the bell would be no problem. He grabbed a candle, protected the flame with his hand, and headed out the open front door. My brothers and sisters and I piled up to the window, opening it. We found nothing but absolutely still, chilly air. We watched his little spot of light move around the house and into the fields into the direction of the bell. The clanging metallic sound stopped, finally, and... The candle's little flame hovered next to it for a solid minute. Why is he taking so long to tie it? Ruth asked. Eleanor suggested. Maybe he's having trouble making a knot. Knots are tough. 
we watched for another minute or two. And I know how this sounds, but the little flame in the distance began to rise. Slowly, smoothly, straight up. We followed it with our eyes, exclaiming the entire time as it moved out of sight beyond the roof overhang. The bell began ringing again. His knot must have come loose, Arthur said. Our parents came to look at our insistence, but there was nothing to be seen by then. Father motioned Arthur. Happy to help out, Arthur grabbed a full lamp rather than a candle. He hurried out the front door, around the house, and into the fields while we watched from the window. The lamp was easier to see, and we were absolutely certain he reached the crook. As the lamplight hovered there, the bell stopped ringing. At that point, we had no reason to think anything was amiss. Maybe the wind had just blown a wisp of burning candle string up into the sky, and Clarence had gotten lost in the dark. He would see the lamplight, find Arthur, and they would both come back. The rising little flame we'd seen had just been a fluke. The only problem was steering out into the autumn night. We still felt no wind at all. We stared at that unmoving light for a strangely long period of time. What was he doing out there? Was he calling for his brother? Why couldn't we hear him if so? Our parents looked away for a moment, and in that instant, the lamp went out. We children bleated, but by the time they glanced back, there was nothing to see. There was only darkness. The bell began ringing again. My father began grumbling, but there were no more sons to send outside. He narrowed his eyes with thought, and then handed Ruth, the oldest girl among us, our main lamp. Our mother laughed. <laughs> Ruth, be a dear and go find your silly brothers. Ruth was a little hesitant, but she accepted the lamp leaving us in the darkness without it, she headed out and around the house and into the fields. The lamp was brighter, and we could actually see her carrying hand when her white pajamas into a small lit halo. On the way there, she regularly called out, Clarence! Arthur! Are you two lost? About halfway to where the other lights had stopped, her calls went instantly silent, mid-sentence. Clarence, Arthur! It wasn't that she'd given up yelling. The sound reaching us had simply stopped completely. We could still see her carrying the lamp, still see her hand in pajamas, still see her turning this way and that. She even raised the house lamp near her face, and we saw her shouting in the darkness. We just didn't hear anything. Nothing except that constantly clanging bell, growing faster in pace and louder in urgency. Mary, Eleanor, and I looked up at our parents with fearful gazes. My father shook his head, speaking for the first time that night. So there's wind out there after all. There's like a river inside of an ocean. It's moving fast out there, carrying her voice away, but... We still can't feel it here. My mother seemed worried, but she nodded and accepted that. We saw her accepting it, so we gulped and believed it too. We all glued our eyes to that open window. Ruth reached the bell, and in that stronger light, it entered our view, unmoving at the exact same time we'd hear it stop ringing. Ruth looked this way and that, clearly concerned. She seemed to silently yell a time or two before moving closer to the motionless bell. A half-tied rope hung from the crook, an indication that someone had attempted to tie it, but we couldn't see Clarence or Arthur anywhere near her. 
She put the lamp down on the ground to free her hands for tying the rope and the rest of the way, but that mostly hid the light among the low-lying, recently harvested stalks. We waited. Breaths held. The air held in my lungs started to burn. At long last, we were forced to breathe again. Ruth's lights continued to sit there, barely visible between the broken plants. What's taking so long? Mary asked. Eleanor said, I hope she's all right. Father told us, she's fine. Damn kids just playing a game with us. Our mother nodded in agreement. Eleanor, go fetch your sister, will you? Eleanor shook her head. No way. It's scary out there. It's just a game. You're not playing a game with us too, are you? No, Eleanor gulped. Then go get your sister and brothers. Tell them to come back in. It was pitch black out there, and almost the same inside with us, save for one lone candle. Trembling, Eleanor took our last candle and crept out into the night, scooting along the side of the house to stay as close to us as possible. Shakily, she called out, Ruth? Arthur? Clarence? This isn't funny anymore. And now it was we who sat in the dark. As Eleanor began to move further away with the last of our light, we tensed. Father eyed the open front door, and Mother softly moved to close and latch it. I wonder what they meant by that move. Because how were the others supposed to get back in? I suppose they'd unlatch it if anyone came back and knocked. Mother moved away from us in search of more candles. Through it all, the bell kept ringing out in the dark. Increasingly scared, I held Mary's hand tightly and yelled out the window, Be careful, Allie! She must have happened across that invisible silent threshold at that moment, because she turned around in surprise and stepped closer. I heard your voice go quiet, but there's no wind. Papa's wrong. She stepped away again. See, when I pass this point, my... She held the candle up to show us that her mouth was still moving, but we heard nothing. Come to think of it, her hair wasn't moving and we hadn't seen Ruth's pajamas blowing in any wind. I asked Father, what's doing that? What's making it quiet out there? It's just a game, Father insisted. They're all lying. She's pretending to make noise, so it looks like she's being silenced. Eleanor reached the bell. Father's grip on my shoulder squeezed to nearly painful. She reached down for the lamp Ruth had left. Lifting it with one hand and holding the candle with the other, she approached the clanging bell. See? Mary whispered to Father. The candle is not going out, even though she's not protecting the flame. There's no wind out there. But the bell is ringing, he said gruffly. So there is wind. Eleanor kept looking left and right as if she'd heard something. Slowly, she reached the bell, which was hanging unmoving from the crook. But we could hear it ringing. Next to me, Mary began to cry. It's a game, Father said angrily. It's just a game they're playing. Eleanor threw the lamp at something in the darkness. We saw the lamp crash, shatter, and then go dark, but heard nothing. She raced toward us, candle in hand, but the flame went out because of her haste. We waited to hear her approaching or screaming, but nothing followed. The bell continued to clang. We waited in terrified silence. Mother returned with a candle for each of us, and we sat vigil at the window. Nothing and no one moved. For hours, the bell clanged without wind. The night remained pitch black. The bell clanged and clanged and clanged, driving deeper into our ears with each passing minute. Near midnight, we broke. Father was beyond agitated. 
Mary, go find your brothers and sisters. No, she cried. I'm not going out there. Mother glared at her. You have to. This game has to stop. Urged on by both of them, Mary burst into tears and climbed out the window. Holding her small candle, she inched out into the fields. Her sobs went quiet as she passed the same point out in the darkness. Her flame reached the bell and the ringing stopped. Her flame snuffed out. We held our breaths. The bell began ringing again. Father clenched his fists. Go. I turned and saw that he was looking at me. I suddenly realized I was the only child left in the house, and I felt horribly alone. Everything in me shrieked against the thought of going out into that cursed night. No. My mother wavered in place, no longer adamantly in line with my father. She began to cry too. What are you doing? He demanded. It's just a game. There's nothing to be scared of. She screamed and demanded. Why do you keep saying that? Why have I been helping you do this? He grabbed her and shouted in her face. Because we haven't been sending our children to their deaths. That's not what's happening. She pushed his hand away and ran for the window. Pushing past me, she tumbled out and ran screaming toward the still clinging bell. Not out of fear of our father, but out of terror for her children. Arthur! Clarence! Ruth! Eleanor! Mary! For God's sake, where are you? He growled and leapt after her, yelling, We didn't kill them! Everything is fine! They both continued shouting until they passed the point in the dark. And all went silent. Except for the bell. Twice more it stopped ringing, and twice more it began again. In panic and terror beyond reason, I closed and latched the window and pushed all the furniture against every entry to the house. I curled in a cupboard, holding the last candle up to my face as it slowly melted its way down toward my fingers. I was alone. Somehow... I was alone. We'd all seen the danger and stared right as it happened. One by one, they'd all gone out there anyway. I'd been surrounded by a full band of siblings my entire life, and now I was completely and utterly alone and in a house in the middle of nowhere. By the length of my candle, it was three in the morning when a knock came at the door. I trembled, but did not make a sound. The knock sounded again, forty heartbeats later. It was louder this time. I shook, holding my candle light. The third knock was more like a tremendous crash or kick, and I heard the door explode inward. Sixty heartbeats of silence passed, and then the floorboards creaked. Something in me told me to put out my candle for fear of it being seen through the cracks in the cupboard, but I didn't care. Not darkness. I couldn't handle the darkness. I would scream if I did, so I kept it lit. Slow, quiet steps moved through the house. Whoever it was seemed to be pausing and listening at times. At others, they would rush forward to a random spot in a sudden frenzy and then stop abruptly. 400 heartbeats after that. The bell began ringing again. But this time, it rang from inside the house. It rang from the kitchen. It rang from near the bed. It rang outside my cupboard. Clang. Ten feet away. Clang. Five feet away. Clang. Right up against the cupboard door. 
it open. I sat expectantly, mouth open and eyes wide, as I waited for my great-grandmother to continue. After a bit, I realized that was it. But what'd you see? She shook her head. That's not the point. I'm here, so obviously I survived. And a young man like you doesn't need to know what horrors walk this world outside the paved cities of man. Gulping, I asked. You're not just pulling my leg. This really happened. Yes. Her gaze went distant by television light. But here's what I want to tell you, and what you should tell your brother. The thing that opened that cupboard door and stared at me from the dark, the thing that hoped to wait out my candle before the coming of dawn, had a bell tied to one of its teeth with a blood-soaked rag in such a way it would clang when its mouth was opened for hunting. Somehow, some way, some heroic poor soul managed to tie a warning bell to that thing before they died. We heard that warning bell all night long. And yet my entire family walked out there one by one. We didn't listen because we didn't want to listen. My father knew what he was doing halfway through, but he didn't want to accept what he'd already done, so he did even worse to continue living the lie. I narrowed my eyes. What are you saying? She grabbed my hand briefly. Fear will tell you to put your candle out, but your head will tell you to keep it lit. Don't give in to fear. You keep it lit, and you'll get through this. Turning my head, I became aware of a sound in the distance. Is that... Is that the bell? I was so caught up I didn't notice. How long had that been ringing? She just clenched her fist and turned back to the television. A quick thank you to all of my $5 patrons and members. Absent Alice, Alice E., Amethyst, Amet, Caroline, Christina Smith, C.T., Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Flanning, Lee Riggs, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New Ongoing 24, Tiger Princess, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the continued support, and thank you to anyone who stops by for each video and watches and leaves a like, a comment. I really appreciate all of it. Thank you all again so much. Have a wonderful day, evening, or afternoon, wherever you are. And as always, stay safe and Take care of yourself and those around you. Take care, everyone.